Father, lead us today in your commands, for there we find delight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're up to our second last church um, in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is the church of Philadelphia, which um, is kind of like a, it's, it's a nice um, church to study because there's really only uh, two kind of good churches um, that get like A report cards in this um, series. Most are kind of a bit depressing to go over because you have to study all the rebukes of Jesus and examine your own heart in that. But this is a good, this is a good church to study. Um, Jesus actually doesn't give any rebuke to the church of Philadelphia. He only uh, gives positive remarks and tells them to hold on to uh, faithfulness. And he gives them these words of comfort, uh, these beautiful words of comfort for a church that is really struggling by worldly standards. As we've went over in these churches, often the churches that seem to be the most successful in the eyes of the world, not much trouble, good numbers, probably have a building. Jesus actually says, mm, there's some issues with you. So we um, think of one church where, uh, which we'll actually study next week, Church of Laodicea, that actually says, I have acquired wealth and I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, actually, that's not quite right. You're poor, wretched, pitiable, blind and naked. Whereas the church of uh, Smyrna that we studied earlier, Jesus says to them, people say that you are poor. You are afflicted and impoverished, but I say you are rich. And so we see that there's a bit of a flip here of worldly standards. And often if it's seen good in the eyes of the world, Jesus has a few rebukes. And if it's seen as impoverished and afflicted in the eyes of the world, Jesus is actually saying, keep on going, keep faithful. And so there's words of comfort here from Christ in all of these letters, really, but particularly the Church of Philadelphia. And there are five particular words of comfort. There are many, like I think we could have drawn any number, but there's just five for the sake of time that I see are clearly in this passage that we will study today. So that is, firstly, I am the fulfillment of all history. This is Jesus's words of comfort. Firstly, I am the fulfillment of all history. Secondly, I alone control the door of salvation. Thirdly, I make feared enemies bow down in worship. Fourthly, I sustain my people through all evil and suffering. And fifth and finally, I give my people my own name. These are our five words of comfort. So first, first word of comfort from Jesus. I am the fulfillment of all history. This is in verses seven and eight. Now, I just want to be upfront in this. This is not explicit in the text. This is something that I'm drawing out implicitly from it. The others are pretty clear, but this is something that I believe is essential to us actually having comfort in this world that will be full of ups and downs. And so straight away, um, I want us to, to see how Jesus fulfills all history. So this is a theme, not only in the book of Revelation, how all of these uh, imagery, all of this imagery 
that we read in Revelation is actually taken from various Old Testament books. So the book of Daniel is based, the, the, what, what John actually authors here in Revelation is based a lot off the book of Daniel. Different themes all throughout Scripture from the tree of life that we read about in Genesis is completed in the very end of Revelation. And so this is all throughout Scripture, how Jesus fulfills all Scripture. This is kind of what he was saying to the people, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And he said, uh, hey, don't you guys realize that everything, all of the prophets and the law, it all points to me. Everything, all of Scripture points to me. The biblical narrative has countless illusions of this Messiah figure from the very beginning where the fall happens and God promises that through the seed of the woman, he would crush the head of the serpent, pointing to Jesus on the cross. As Moses, you might remember, as he takes the Israelites out of slavery and he's this great figure, yet he falls short in a lot of ways. And God promises, I will raise up another prophet like Moses. There will be another great figure to deliver my people out of slavery. And we get to the prophets and there are countless prophecies and types that point to Jesus as the one who would finally bring fulfillment. And that's why I'm getting this first point from this text, because the introduction that Jesus gives in this passage in Revelation 3 verse 7 is actually from Isaiah chapter 22. So in Isaiah chapter 22, God is basically rebuking the leader of Israel's household because his people are unrepentant. And in Isaiah 22 verse 20, we read, In that day, this is God speaking now, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So this is the same wording that Jesus is now giving here in this introduction to the church of Philadelphia. So back in Isaiah 22, God promises that this servant Eliakim will have the keys of David, which is to say he will have the keys to the kingdom. And the kingdom of Israel back then when David was king was supposed to be an embodiment of God's reign. So David was a figure. The king was meant to represent the true king who is God himself. And this kingdom was meant to be the place of God's reign, a place where the nations would look on and see, oh, what a wise and understanding people. The, the king was to represent God. And so this is what's happening here in Isaiah 22. God is saying that I will give to my servant Eliakim the keys of David. So the kingly authority, my authority, will be given to him so that whatever he opens, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will open. Now, this wasn't so much of a prophecy. This is a bit of um, terminology or a theology mini lecture here. It's not so much of a prophecy, but it's what we would call a type. And so there are types 
in the Bible. A type is something like um, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 actually refers to that event of the Israelites being taken out of Egypt and through the Red Sea on their way to the promised land. Paul actually says that's a type of baptism because we in our baptism are set free from slavery. We're cleansed as we enter into the presence of God by the Holy Spirit because we are cleansed of our sin. And so that's a, a type. And this is important, not just because they're kind of interesting facts that you can share at a dinner table. This is important, like practically important, because it is a common theme throughout all of Scripture that shows how Jesus fulfills everything, how all of the events point to Jesus. They point to this Messiah who would reign. And therefore, because scripture is God's story, it is history, world history. And so that's how Jesus fulfills all history. I wonder if you've ever thought about why. I wonder if you ever actually thought about this. Why does the life of Jesus mirror the story of Israel? Have you ever noticed that? How the life of Jesus on earth actually mirrors the story of Israel. So Israel, leaves Egypt as a growing nation. God calls them out. Jesus, when he was a boy, was in Egypt and he is called out of Egypt as a growing boy. The Israelites, they cross through the Red Sea, which we just heard was a type of baptism. They cross through the Red Sea before entering into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested. Jesus, in his ministry, is baptized and what does he do next? He enters into the wilderness to be tested by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel received God's law from a mountain. Is there any uh, significance then in the fact that Jesus gives those very same laws but applies them to our heart from a mountain? Over a thousand years later, there were the 12 tribes of Israel. Why does Jesus pick 12 men? Is it just a bit neurotic about numbers? There are, there's so much more to this. But the point is that Jesus is actually his whole life shows how Israel's history was pointing to this promised Messiah, Jesus. See, Israel was God's chosen people. They were to bear witness to him in Isaiah 49. They were to be a light. They were to be a light, but they failed. And so Jesus comes in. And the author of the Gospel of John, John himself, clues onto this straight away because in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light. So what was spoken about in Isaiah that Jesus then takes as this introduction is him saying again and again, everything is pointing to me. And you might be asking, why is this comforting? And this is quite simply comforting because we are part of this story. We are part of this story. And this story that we are in, every single human being, but most importantly, we who have trusted in Christ, this story is working on an immovable and unchangeable trajectory toward Jesus Christ who is our life, 
Colossians 1, 15 and 16. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. He is preeminent. Everything is pointing to him. So we take great comfort in the fact that Jesus is the one who fulfills all history. I hope this is comforting for you. Because he is the one who makes all history conform to the pattern of his will. If you've trusted in Christ, you've just been wrapped up in this story where he is bringing your whole life, your whole existence toward this day where he will be all in all. And we trust in him. So we take great comfort in that. That's the first point. The second point, which is now more explicit in this text I alone control the door of salvation. So this is actually flowing on from the passage in Isaiah that we saw is fulfilled in Jesus being the one who has the keys of David, by which he opens a door that no one can shut. And as I said before, the keys of David are the keys to the Davidic reign, which is his kingdom, the place of God's reign. So Jesus having these keys, and in verse 8 saying... I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. Is Jesus saying to the church of Philadelphia and to us, the door to my kingdom, the door to my presence is open and no one can shut it. No one can shut it. Just like in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. They follow me. And no one can snatch them out of my hands. No one. It's impossible. I'm the great shepherd. If you've trusted in me, no one can snatch you out of my hands. This open door is a door that only I open and only I shut. And this is one of the most comforting promises we can have. The gift of God's presence and communion with him is entirely God's work. This is called a a, a doctrine um, called perseverance of the saints. That's what generally theologians refer to it as. It's one of the most comforting doctrines, the idea that actually Christ perseveres in your life. If you've trusted in him, you have trusted in the fact that he will persevere in your life to bring you and present you before the Father as holy, blameless and above reproach. The golden chain whom he Um, predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. If you've been called, you you can trust that you will, by God's grace, persevere to the Father. And that's why we can sing the song that we'll sing after this, He Will Hold Me Fast. That's why we can actually sing, regardless of how we're feeling, regardless of what has happened in our lives, we can sing with great confidence, He will hold me fast. I wonder if you believe that. And a common objection to this is, well, why bother then? Why bother to grow in holiness if God's going to do it anyway? And see, the fact that Jesus holds on to us, the fact that Jesus perseveres in our life is precisely why we press on. It's not so much that, We hold on to him or else we die. It's that he has grabbed a hold of us. And because he has grabbed a hold of us, the fruit of that will be us 
pressing on in the strength that he gives while we are in his grasp. Notice that the fruit of the Philadelphian church in verse 8 was that they kept the word of Jesus and they did not deny his name. We have to see the link between Christ's persevering work in our lives and faithfulness, both of which must be present. There is a duty for you to be holy, to grow in holiness, to be obedient to the commands. But the reason you do that is because he has grabbed a hold of you. So in John 17, this I think is made very clear in this passage. In John 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples and all who would believe in their word, he says to the Father, Jesus is praying to the Father, right before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the disciples kept his word. The disciples stayed faithful, but Jesus says, these are the ones whom you, Father, have given me. You have given them to me. They were yours before they were mine, and that is the reason why they have kept your word. Chosen before the foundation of the world, and the fruit of that will be obedience. So that is how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, like Paul says in Philippians 2. We test it out. We actually test out. Are we obedient? Because we couldn't unless the grace of God was working within us. And the order of this is essential to us being able to take great comfort in our salvation. The order of this is that God in his grace comes down and picks you up out of the miry clay, washes you clean, sets your feet upon the rock, and then says, now enjoy my presence, follow me. I've washed you clean. I've given you the ability to follow me now. You never could. But I have come down, I've picked you up, I have washed you. Now live as my child. Our strength, like our strength as Christians is in the fact that our all-powerful God has grabbed a hold of us. And that which he takes a hold of, no one can snatch out of his hand. No one shuts that door. That is tremendously comforting. The third reality here is where Jesus says, I make feared enemies bow down in worship. So in verse 9, Jesus explains that he will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, I will make them bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is referring to those who claim to be Jews, who claim to be God's chosen people, but are not. And we uh, faced this a few weeks ago. And as I said back then, Jesus is not anti-Semitic because he was a Jew himself. He's anti-sin. So these people are liars. Jesus is saying they claim to be Jews, but they're not. Because as Paul says in Romans 2, a Jew, a true chosen person of God is not a Jew uh, outwardly, but uh, someone inwardly who has been transformed by their trust in the Messiah. And this is actually wrapped up in what we've just been going over with this theme of the keys of salvation, the keys being handed over. So Jesus having the keys of David. So if you remember in Matthew 23, Jesus gives a bunch of rebukes. 
And like you see kind of the righteous anger of Jesus. He just kind of scolds the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He, he gives a whole bunch of woes to them. And so he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders of that day, were supposed to proclaim God's kingdom. They were supposed to proclaim this kingdom that was open to all who would trust in the Messiah. But they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They placed impossible burdens upon people that no one could carry. And now the keys are given to the Messiah, which is why Jesus says, I have the keys of David. And subsequently, he gives the same authority to his church, which is why in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter after his great confession, well done, Peter, you've rightly proclaimed that I'm the Messiah. Now, here are the keys of heaven. What you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. The same idea of kingly authority Jesus gives to his church because there is a union with Christ where the keys that symbolize authority are administered by the church. I'll just keep speaking louder and louder, Eliora. Um, the, the keys that we have. So Jesus has the keys of David, right? But he also says, you as the church have this same authority. What you bind on earth will have been bound, on, bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. We share in this reign that Jesus has. And so how does this show us that Christ will make our enemies bow down in worship? And why is it comforting? Is it just because we have some vigilante justice about us and we just can't wait for everyone who stole from us to bow down at our feet and that punk kid in year three who stole my lunch will finally bow down at my feet? It's obviously nothing like that at all. We have to understand that during the first century, one of the greatest threats to the church, along with the Roman Empire, but perhaps maybe an even greater threat early on, was the Jewish leaders. So Saul, you might remember, before he was transformed into the Apostle Paul, was a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, who was killing Christians. He was there consenting to the death of Stephen when he got stoned. And while he was on the road to Damascus, he was off to try and throw more Christians in jail. That was where the majority of the persecution was coming from. So Jesus, Jesus is saying here that I have the keys of David, not the misguided religious leaders who are trying to oppress you, who are actually symbolic of everything that sets itself up against God's reign. An exchange has happened. And so I, Jesus, as the true Israel, as the true servant of God, have complete authority over these people who set themselves up against my kingdom. And we know, we know that there is coming a day where every knee will bow. Where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because we share in such a union with Christ, because he actually identifies, like this is so comforting, because he identifies with us, the least of these, my brothers, Jesus identifies with us. 
Because of that, we share in his victory where every knee will bow. So the promise isn't that we will be worshipped specifically. The promise isn't that people, everyone who's wronged us will come and bow down at our feet. The point of this is that we are in Christ. He identifies with us. We share in this victory so intimately that our enemies will be his enemies. His enemies will be our enemies. There is a oneness. And we can take great comfort in the fact there is coming a day where everything will be made right. This idea of enemies bowing down means that justice will come. Justice will come. And it's not, as I said, a vigilante justice that we initiate of ourselves. It's that we just, as a weak people, humbly clothe ourselves in Christ and wait for him to bring about justice where we will share in that reality of every knee bowing before our king. The fourth point here, our second last point, I sustain my people through evil and suffering. So this is in verse 10. Jesus says, because you have kept my word, which is the fact that they have kept his word is the fruit of those who have first been kept by the Lord. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I don't know if you've noticed, but the reality is that we live in a fallen, broken world. Terrible, terrible things happen. And so we will face evil. And here Jesus promises to keep the Philadelphian church from the hour of trial. And um, if you have studied this topic before. Can I just say this is not referring to a rapture of any kind. This isn't referring to the fact that Jesus will rapture the church out. And I would say that because the exact same word is used in John 17 when Jesus prays for believers. So in John 17, and if you've never even heard of the word rapture, just stay with me. This will be like a minute and then we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track. But for those who might um, think of this as a rapture, as being kept from evil, as though we'll kind of be taken away from the hour of trial. When Jesus prays in John 17, he specifically asks the Father, not that we are taken from the world, but that we are kept from evil. And that is the exact same word used here has the idea of being preserved. So it's not that we're taken out. It's not that we will be taken out of evil. It's that through evil and through suffering, we will be preserved. We will be kept. And that is tremendously comforting. And this is demonstrated magnificently in the life of a man called John Patton. John Patton was a Scottish missionary. Over a hundred years ago, he went to um, modern-day Vanuatu, all the way from Scotland. And I've been in Scotland and heading to anywhere with sun and above 20 degrees is the, the cost of discipleship. But he, uh, more than that, this island was actually full of cannibals. And so he um, chose, after receiving the call of God, to head over to this island called New Hebrides at the time, but modern-day Vanuatu. And so he moved over to the island of Tanna on New Hebrides with his pregnant wife. And about two weeks after arriving, uh, his wife gave birth to their first son. They just moved over from Scotland 
on a long journey. I mean, think about what that would have been like about 150 years ago. They finally arrive, she gives birth. A week after that, his wife dies. She dies. Two weeks after that, his baby boy dies. He's just moved over, he's left his whole family, obediently following the cost, obediently following the call that God has given him. His wife dies, and a week after that, his first and only child dies. He's left alone. He records this of, of, um, from his diary not long after that. He says, Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it will be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. Basically saying, if you haven't been through this, there's no point. There's no point in me trying to explain to you the sorrow and the grief that I feel. Nevertheless, he persevered. He persevered alone, trying to reach these cannibal islanders who were trying to kill him at any opportunity. This is recorded from him. He says, once when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. But a chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. That's just one example of many in his biography of times when islanders are trying to kill him. And he's there. He's actually there as a doctor and bringing them the gospel. He's healing them and they are trying to kill him. John Patton faithfully obeyed God's call. He lost his wife and his baby instantly. He then faced several years of being persecuted by locals. For the first five years, saw no fruit at all. In fact, there was one time where he went to, he was told that he needed to um, heal someone and they were lying under a cover. And as soon as he walked in the room, the person threw off the cover. He had a spear in his hand and he tried to kill him. Thankfully, he got away. But I ask you, was he kept from evil? He lost his wife and his baby. He was alone. He saw no fruit. Was he kept from evil? If our lives reflected even one-tenth of what he went through, we would be convinced we are under God's curse and we would probably throw in the towel. Patton was not spared from the loss of his loved ones. He was not spared from the slander and persecution of locals. He was not spared from the illnesses and disease that comes with 19th century island life. He was not spared from heartache and misery, but he was kept by his Lord and Saviour every millisecond of his life. He was preserved in a supernatural way through suffering to trust in his Saviour. And actually, five years after those, that first period, the island of Tanna was converted to Christ. Many came to know Jesus after those five years of terrible, terrible circumstances. And Patton knew this truth. So reflecting upon one night when he was surrounded by savage natives, this is what he wrote. Again, another situation where he's just trying to be killed by the, the locals. He says, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. 
The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. This is what it means to be kept from evil. This promise from our Lord that he will sustain us. He will keep us from the hour of trial, whether that means allowing us to succumb to the evil of this world and even lose our life and so be with him for eternity or whether he sustains us now, knowing that he still has work for us to do. He will sustain us. And that is a beautiful comfort that we can take a hold of. And the last point, just to finish off, Jesus promises here, I give my people my own name. Just skipping to the last bit of verse 12. Jesus promises that those who conquer will be made pillars in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And here's the point. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. This is one of the most comforting promises we have in Scripture, the fact that we bear his name. I've spoken about this a few times at um, our prayer meetings, that, that the basis from which we have confidence and boldness in our salvation and in actually making requests to God is because we bear his name. We bear the name of Jesus. We're co-heirs. This is what Daniel demonstrates in Daniel chapter 9. When Israel has been destroyed, Jerusalem is gone. They're all exiled off. And Daniel looks upon Israel and he's praying to the Lord. And he says, Lord, look upon your city. Look upon your city. It's desolate. Look upon us. We're exiled. And he says, deliver us. And we we don't ask this. We don't ask this because of any righteous deeds we have done. We ask this because you are merciful and because we and your city bear your name. We bear your name. So come through for us. There is a beautiful boldness that we can have if we only realize that the boldness we have is because of nothing we have done, but because of the name of Jesus. It's the same um, reason that Moses, when God said, I'm just going to do away with these people, Moses, and you and I will go make our own nation. And Moses says, but Lord, what will the Egyptians think of your name? You, you, you dragged us out of there. You said you would lead us into a promised land. If you do this now, it will bring your name into disrepute. Don't do it. Think about your name. It must be held as a holy and glorified. And there's a great passion that we can have for that. I remember when I was in uh, year two, I think, in primary school, I was playing soccer and our ball went off into the big year sixes game. And just because they were um, annoying year sixes, one of the kids grabbed our soccer ball and he was going to kick it over the neighbor's fence so that we couldn't get it. And I remember that there was one huge guy, a Goliath type guy in um, year six, who was also called Tom. And he knew me because I think my sister was in his year and he knew me. And I remember the other dude about to kick the ball over the fence. And just because year six is a juvenile, all all kids are, he was like, no, don't do that, man. That guy's name is Tom. And so they gave the ball back to us. 
It was beautiful. Redemption. And I remember, I remember thinking at that time, I am so glad I have his name. Thank goodness I'm called Tom. And, I, and even, this is why I believe we can all grasp this, because even as a seven-year-old that I would have been, I did not think that I deserved any of that. Like I didn't think, I wasn't trying to make my name great. I was just from that point on being like, year six, Tom, you do your thing, man. You keep being great. And I will just, as a little measly year two, just reap the benefits of it. You keep doing your thing. And like, that's obviously um, a comical example, but the, the reality is that that's kind of a similar posture that we have. Like we don't take any pride in our name. We just say, God, oh, I can't believe that you would give me your name. Your name be magnified. Make it great. I want to have a passion for your name, not because I deserve any of this. I'm a measly year two. I don't, I'm just like a puny. I could be crushed. Your name, make it great. And, and I will just bask in your name and enjoy it. Our posture is one of humility where we actually recognize that the basis of our boldness in prayer is entirely because of his name. And for those who have trusted in Christ, there's a great boldness that we can have where we actually boast in his name. We boast in the name of Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh. We boast, make your name great. Let it be holy. And that's why we actually finish our prayers in Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered that? You know, when we finish praying in Jesus' name isn't like some magical tagline that kind of opens up, like unlocks the prayer in Jesus' name. Okay, now I've got it. It's because we're reminding ourselves these prayers, all that we ask, we are asking in Jesus' name, not in our name, but in Jesus' name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If, if history, just as I finish now, if history is any indication, like we've seen in these letters to the churches, like we've seen over the course of church history, it's that those who stay faithful to the Lord will not necessarily have an easy and comfortable life. In fact, it will probably be uncomfortable. And so these words of comfort that we have here, we have to hold on to them. We have to appropriate them directly to our hearts and hold dear to them. And these words of comfort will be an anchor for us. Let me pray and then we'll finish um, by singing a song and take communion. Father, we, we pray in uh, just great joy right now over that reality that we bear your name. You have given us your name. What a privilege. We don't deserve it in any way. But, but we, through no righteous acts of our own, but because you are so loving and merciful, we will boast in that. We will boast in your name. We rejoice in the fact that we have a seat at your table, that we can enjoy your presence, that we have these words of comfort for us. Father, Help us to, to remember these. And as we sing in praise to you and as we then take the bread and, and juice, we, we pray that we would do so remembering that we're doing it in Jesus' name. We are in Christ and therefore we, we are greatly comforted. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.